0: We're going to continue in our little mini-series this morning, or I call a mini-series of maybe half a dozen messages, and to um, those visitors amongst us, we're looking at what it means and what it is to live a changed life for Jesus Christ. And um, and we're, we're looking at Colossians chapter 2 and 3, and um, for the sake of you who I've taken it upon myself to uh, put the text up on the PowerPoint today and um, you can follow along with that or follow along in your own um, reading media device or whatever you have there and uh, let's read that together or follow along with me please. We pick up at, at verse verse 6 or verse 5. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, or lust, evil desire and greed which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. But now... You also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. I'm sure God will add a blessing to his word as we endeavor to flesh that out a little bit. The title of our message this morning is, Spiritual Fitness Requirements. And um, we're living in a day as you will know, I certainly know I'm sure you will do too that being physically fit and having bodies showing that we have won the battle of the bulge is the healthy thing to do. I haven't got there yet as you might have noticed but slimmer and fitter bodies certainly has its health and well-being benefits, you would agree and the fitness gurus gymnasiums, home gym retailers and personal trainers like Joe Bag here, they love it because it gives them an income. Fitness and weight loss even has the government on the media recently, you know, where they have these give-it-a-go programs, uh, slogans, give-it-a-go, they say. I think it helps their fiscal budget, or I think it may do, If people can become more healthy or fitter and slimmer. But really, when you think about all this, who doesn't want to be healthy and fit, especially when it means leaning, losing a, or shedding a few excess kilos? Who doesn't want that? That's a healthy thing to do, right? But the problem is, but the problem is, with all these fitness and exercise programs, they in and by themselves, they don't do, they, they don't do it all for us. They really don't. So sorry, go. You're going to have to work on it as well. And um, it, 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 that is not the whole recipe for weight loss and fitness success. It isn't. I proved this some years ago myself. I'm speaking from experience here. I joined a gym, where for several months, three days a week, I would plow off down to the gym and I would work out for an hour or so and and I was on a circuit of all the different machines so I lifted weights, I cycled, I swam, I ran you name it, I disciplined my body often to the point of exhaustion. I was determined to lose weight. You know what? I never lost an ounce. I never lost an ounce. All I lost was a whole lot of dollars. And you know what? The other half of the recipe, I failed to execute at home. I continued with my same old eating habits, plus a whole lot more. So the key to losing weight is combining the elimination of destructive eating habits and the development of disciplined exercise programs. Bit of a no-brainer, right? That's right, isn't it, Joe? Both go together. And I needed both of those things in action at the same time. I needed to eliminate the negatives and develop the positives. Folks, this is exactly, this is exactly the same key, the same recipe for spiritual fitness. This is how the Christian becomes spiritually fit to live a changed life for Jesus Christ. We need to eliminate the destructive and sinful habits of of the flesh and develop behaviours that are in sync with the indwelling Holy Spirit. These words in our text that we have read this morning are not a recipe, I'll make this clear, are not a recipe for salvation. Because we know that we're not saved by works, right? No matter what you do, no matter how many times you come to church, no how many times you even read your Bible, no how many times you even pray, those human efforts, those human exercises will not save you. We are saved by grace through faith. Praise God for that. This instructive recipe in our text is for believers on how to live changed lives, abundant and victorious lives for Jesus Christ, now that we have been made alive, as we were reading a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2. So this morning we will allow the Apostle Paul, and he's the one that wrote this letter to the, the believers in Colossae, will allow him through the Spirit of God to tell us what things... What kind of things we need to eliminate from our lives. Okay? And next week, God willing, we're going to be looking at what things we need to develop in our lives in order to be spiritually fit. And so, this is our text for this morning what we need to eliminate. The first thing is we're to kill destructive vices. Paul begins saying in verse 5 this is therefore, or consider as dead or put to death might be what you have in your translations and this expression carries a far stronger meaning than we might give it at times in our English understanding of things put to death or consider as dead it means to to kill it to eliminate it to eradicate it so it's a whole lot stronger than in in our English understanding so he says Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the, these, the wrath of God is coming. We see that in verse 5 and 6. But before we look at detail at, this, at Paul's command, we need to understand the seriousness of Paul's statement here. As it is a serious one. As I mentioned before, the, the word put to death is very strong. And this word has the idea of taking radical action. That's what it adds. In other words, if no radical action is taken on these sinful tendencies that we may be continuing in and dabbling with, they will act like a cancer to our spiritual lives. And don't forget, radical action begins in the mind here. I'm reminded of, obviously, some radical action, a climber, an American climber who who went solo, unwisely, And uh, some years ago, back in 2003 actually, and you probably have read about it and heard about it and he went climbing and in the process of his climb he slipped and his hand became wedged in a moving boulder and he couldn't free himself six days later surviving on a little bit of water he was able to suck out of his water bottle with his hand still wedged in this shifting boulder He decided that if he wanted to see the light of another day, he was going to to take radical action. In other words, in sheer determination, if I want to live, if I want to survive, I need to take radical action. There was the mind work, okay? So he took out his pocket knife, or he broke his arm first and hacked his arm off. And then he staggered his way to freedom to live the light of another day and to tell the story. This radical action, this determination of the mind... And the persistence of the will is exactly what we're talking about here. As a matter of fact, it's exactly the same kind of radical action that Jesus calls for in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and verse 30. And this is what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the kind of radical action this putting to death here speaks of. As I said before, this is not to be taken literally, right? As some men down through the ages have and done where in the end, physical mutilation of their bodies has taken place, thinking that, okay, this will get rid of my sin if I cut this off, chop this, hack myself, flagellate myself or whatever. No, no, it's not talking about that here. It's working of the mind. It's the determination of the mind. It's then to take radical action. And so in our context, it means simply this. Radical action may mean, if I have to get rid of the internet, so be it, get rid of it. Okay? If I have to disconnect the movie site or the movie channel that I'm on, uh, because I'm just allured towards some of the, the sinful kind of movies that are on, get rid of it. Cancel it. This is the kind of radical action he was talking about. And so you may ask, well, why is that? Why should I? Well, Paul answers that clearly. He says this. The first reason he gives, because of these things, or an account of these things, the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. We see that in verse 6. Now he's not saying that if a believer gets hooked up in these things he will experience God's furious wrath. No, he's not saying that. After all, we know from 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that we have been delivered from the wrath to come, right? So we're not talking about that the believer is going to suffer God's future wrath. No, he is saying that this kind of behaviour belongs to the unregenerate. Belongs to those who are not believers. And because of that Because of that, because they own and love and pamper and and sort of have these sort of things ever before them, because of that they will suffer God's future furious wrath. It belongs to those who are separated from God. And because of that, we should be as far away from that kind of stuff as we possibly can. The second reason Paul gives here why we should put to death these things is that it, is that this is the kind of life you once worked in. Walked in. sorry, i quiet. I'm a bit behind here. It's the second reason. It says this is the kind of love you once walked in and owned. You know that once you were in rags and, and in the tatters of sin, but now you're enjoying the riches of God's grace and God's goodness. Why go? To what you once were. Do not return, he says. Do not return. In other words, this kind of behaviour will only ever bring God's displeasure, never ever his blessing. Yet even in the life of a believer, sinful practices will always reap their consequences. They will, they really will. Sin in the life of a believer will rob us of spiritual joy and contentment and satisfaction that we have in the Lord Jesus. Going back to chapter 2, verse 10, we read that we are made complete in him, right? He's everything to us. He is totally sufficient for all our needs. And if he's not totally sufficient and, and we, don't, we don't know and, and are growing in that experience of being complete in him, there will be this void where we will begin to look in other areas. So we're complete in him and if we continue to sin or dabble with these things uh, we will be robbed of our spiritual joy and so this is why whenever sins like these that we've read in our, our, our text here and by the way this is not an exhaustive list if you want to see a, a more exhaustive list you go to Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 and 21 you'll see a greater list that you could probably put in here as well so whenever we see these kind of sins raise their ugly heads what do we need to do? We need to kill them we need to put them to death. We need to stop them in their tracks before they trap us and make shipwrecks of our lives for Jesus Christ. I want to take some time now on each of these words this morning because in our culture, these kind of sins that we're rid of are running amok. And sad to say, as someone once well coined, the sins of the culture soon become the sins of the church. So allow the Spirit of God to inform us and to warn us and to strengthen our resolve, to strengthen my resolve to take radical action to eliminate these kind of things in our lives or when they begin to raise their ugly heads, as I've said. The first one is put to death sexual immorality. What Paul does in this first list, and there's two lists here in our text today, what Paul does in this first list is he kind of works backwards beginning with the act of immorality, and then he focuses on the underlying forces that build up to the sinful act. Okay? And so the Greek word for immorality, by the way, is the word porneiae. This is where we get the word pornographic or pornography from. But in New Testament times, in Paul's day, this word porniae, or that we we use immorality for, it, it, it was used more broadly. It was to include any kind of illicit sexual behaviour. Any kind. But as we think about that, talking about illicit sex in our culture may be stopped there, right? Because after all, any kind of sex is kosher To, to a general degree. Anything goes, kind of thing. But the scriptures are very clear. The scriptures are very clear. And I want to be quite candid and frank here this morning. The only sex that is right and stamped with God's approval is sex inside the marriage bond. You got that? Young people? Old people? Middle-aged? That's it. Our cultural standards, they shift, and they ebb and they flow, and usually regress and regress. But God does not. He does not. When it comes to sex, our culture is saturated and boasts in its freedom. Sex before marriage, outside of marriage, and all other sexual deviancies are so common in in our day that we even hardly blink an eye. Sad to say, even our defence mechanism has become so weakened by the flagrant cohesion in our culture that we don't even know how to blush anymore. It's everywhere we turn. It's in the movies, it's in the media, it's in the television, it's in the print, it's in the internet. Even companies advertising new cars cannot seem to advertise the new cars without using some sexual alluring video clips. Dear people, even though sexual sin has become commonplace and acceptable in our culture, this does not change the fact that such sexual freedom is contrary to God's design. You got that? It's contrary to God's design. Let me read a text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and I'll leave this section. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-7, to this is what we read. For this is the will of God. Okay, young people, anyone here, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Start with this. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Put to death Impurity. This is the next one out of it. Put to death impurity. You see, the driving force behind any sexual sin, no matter what it is, begins in the mind. It does. Impurity, this word has the idea of, of, of filthiness or uncleanness behind it. Impurity is that which un- underlies all sexual sin. The sinful sexual act, whatever that might be, it does not happen automatically. What I mean by that, you know, when you have a scratch, you itch, you scratch it, it doesn't happen like that. You don't even think, well, you've got to your legs so you scratch it. Sexual sin doesn't happen like that. No person ever wakes up one morning and sets about to commit sexual immorality without first pondering all that stuff in his mind. Impurity is deep-seated and powerful and sinful feeling. It involves our imagination, our speech, our eyes, our ears. All these things trigger impurity. Okay? The triggers of impurity. An impure mind is what what immediately precedes immorality of any kind. Immorality is the act, impurity is the thought. How we need the wisdom of that old Sunday school song that I used to sing years ago, and probably some of you do, do. remember it. Be careful little eyes what you see. And the next chorus, the next verse goes, be careful little ears what you hear, and it goes on down. And it says, be careful little tongue what you say. And I think the chorus goes, because there is a Father up above who looks down upon us in love, be careful little ears and eyes and tongue, and so forth. Now, uh, we need that wisdom. We must kill impurity when it invades our minds. Put to death lust or passion. Passion, lust, lust, passion are both the same thing. What is lust? Lust is simply a God-given function. You know? Lust is simply a God-given function to desire wholesome things completely gone wrong. That's what it is. Desire becomes lust when we want to have experience feel and see that which God has not designed for us to have experience feel and see it's God's it's a God sanctioned desire for a man and his wife to have experience feel and see one another and so they should that's one of the privileges and pleasures of marriage but when that desire shifts to want someone else other than your spouse, that is lust with no exception. No exceptions. Remember David? King David? He should have been out fighting a battle, but it was springtime. He decided he'd just relax up a little bit and send the boys out, and he would just sit back in the palace. And then he saw a woman bathing on the rooftop. Remember that? It should have and it could have stopped right there. But no. Lust took hold, and you know the rest of the story. In contrast, remember Joseph? Joseph, the head honcho of Egypt, he had Mrs. Potiphar begging him for sex over and over again. What an environment. But did it stop there? Absolutely it did stop right there. He fled from that lust trap. He took radical action. He didn't care about the consequences that he would lose his job. And little did he know he'd spend years after in prison for it. You see, when we think of lust, it's often characterized by seeing people as mere objects for one's own personal gratification. As Mrs. Potiphar saw Joseph. When we think of lust, it's usually thinking about sex with no personal commitment. You got that? It's lust. It's thinking about sex with no personal commitment, no responsibility to anyone, but simply to enjoy the simple pleasure for oneself. Lust is dangerous and it leads to the easy next step of immorality. Put it to death. Put it to death. Put to death evil desires. There is a clear overlap here, I believe, between uh, lust and evil desire, but it seems that that lust speaks of the the the, uh, specific evil action of the mind, whereas when we think of evil desires, it's what leads up to those lustful thoughts. It's like a a prelude um, that leads to full blown lust it's about where, when and what first triggers those lustful thoughts, this is what I believe evil desires are it's that part of us that wants the biggest thrill, it's that part of us that wants a bigger kick in life it's a part of us that wants to let loose, so we can lax up a bit here, you know so that we can enjoy, after all we might be missing out on something In these kind of situations, one might say, what's wrong with looking at that magazine or watching that stodgy movie? We can handle it. It's a side of us that wants to play with fire or get as close as we can to the immoral cliff edge without falling off. You see, folks, when evil desires are spawned, What we are doing is we are cultivating a seedbed for future lust and future lustful actions. They need to be put to death. Put to death greed. It may seem a little strange here to put greed in in this list. But in reality, when we think of greed, it's the core ingredient of lust and immorality greed is the desire to have something that you don't have that someone else does. You got that? In other words, it is a, it's a complete dissatisfaction with what God has given you. In essence, it is the belief that some object, experience or possession will add greater contentment and satisfaction to your life. Or if I have this, my life will be made more complete. Greed, plain and simple, is blatant idolatry, as the scriptures tell us here. It's blatant idolatry. Let me flesh this out a little bit further. You are not content with your spouse God has given you, so you take someone else's. That's greed. You are not content with your present single status, so you supplement it with pornography and premarital sex and other lustful actions. That's greed. You're not content with your wife and family so you transfer your time, your desires and your energy to your business, your career and other material acquisitions. That's greed. Discontentment leads to the sin of greed which is idolatry. But the terrible part of all this as I was thinking about the terrible part of all this is that it's amazing how how so many believers can delude themselves in the mix of all this stuff. Delusion sets in. You know, I know men who have been leaders in churches who for years, while still in the ministry, were pornographic addicts. I know another who was a pedophile and several others in their lustful greed who took other men's wives. This happens. You see, folks, calling oneself a Christian and going through the motions does not exempt us from being tempted from these sinful actions. It doesn't. Solomon spoke with great wisdom when he said, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Proverbs 6.21-27 Solomon's point is clear. You cannot ignore God's standards without paying the price. Greed, lust, evil desires, impurity and, and immorality all have a huge cost, as you will know. As we think about some of those costs, even in our society, and sad to say, even in our churches today... We have broken hearts, we have loss of trust in marriages, we have sexual intimacy losing its special uniqueness, superficial relationships based on feelings rather than commitment, you have sexual disease, you have rape, you have incest, you have abortions, Christian testimony of the believer is completely destroyed, and we fail it putting Christ on display in our marriages and family. Those are just some of the costs. And you can go on and on. Anytime we play with fire, there will be consequences. Our job is to do everything possible to maintain purity in our minds and our hearts. That's our responsibility. We must be actively diligent in avoiding lust-producing material. We really must. We must strive. We must strive to avoid that lustful look. And it's so hard, believe me. especially for us blokes. You walk down the street, I'm 62 and it still happens. I cannot gravitate to some woman who is dressed immorally. I often tell myself that woman cannot certainly be a Christian dressed like that. And i turn my other way another way. It really happens. And by the way, I thank God for you ladies here who show great wisdom in the kind of clothes you wear and choose. In case you didn't know, it, ladies, you have the potential by what you wear to either incite lustful thoughts or encourage wholesome ones. You really can. You really do. And so I encourage you and thank God for what you do. You see, we must work hard to focus on the pure, right? We really must in this impure world. We must be like Joseph, more and more like Joseph, who when opportunity arose to compromise his sexual purity, he fled from it, knowing that it was a sin against himself it was going to be a sin against his master but most of all it was going to be a sin against his God when temptation rises we must recognize that our flesh is weak and is no match for temptation's power no match dear people the antidote for greed is contentment you got that contentment a contented person will not desire to violate any other person sexually or covet anything that a person owns. Remember the Apostle Paul, this is what he said. And this is a very broad statement covering all of his life. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And his circumstances were pretty tough at some glance, right? But he learned to be content. That's Philippians 4, chapter 11. His contentment was found in Christ. His gaze always gravitated heavenward, as we looked at last week in the first few verses of this chapter. Where Christ his sovereign Lord was, that's where his contentment was found. Everything else was secondary, no matter how trying the times. Valma and I often help one another in this area. And keep one another honest by asking each other a simple question. Well, we do it regularly. I probably need it more than others, because I'm prone to be discontent. We simply ask one another, are you contented with your lot?" And we're expected to answer seriously that question. Facts attacking greed with contentment, you know what it does? It hacks at the root of sin. As we see in verses 8 and 9, as we move on here, and we'll just wrap up with this, Paul is not done with what the believer must eliminate in his life in order to be spiritually fit. No, he's not done yet because he moves to the second list. Now, this list of sins is more social in nature. It's more social, in other words, it's about other people and it affects other people. Not that the first list doesn't do, don't affect other people, but that the first list is more personal, whereas this list he's about to get into in verse eight and nine is more social. This is what he says. Basically he says, discard them all, he says, but now you also put them all aside, or discard them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Interesting to note here, the Greek word for putting them aside, I think that's what I've got up in my in my in my translation, is the same word that was used in the contemporary culture of Paul's day as taking off or discarding dirty work clothes at the end of the day. That was the same word here. The idea here is that believers should also discard, take off the filthy, tattered rags of our past life or of old sinful ways. That's the idea. So we discard anger or wrath or rage and these are closely linked here. This anger is the kind that builds up and smoulders, you know? It smoulders under the surface and then is triggered by something or someone. Triggered by something or someone. Okay, I've jumped ahead of me that's right. you can understand. You know, when we look at this kind of anger, it's always about some kind of resentment that gets deeper and deeper and deeper and, and, and then it will explode one day if it isn't resolved. It usually begins by simply, listen to this, it usually begins simply by not getting one's own way over something. Crazy, isn't it? How much rage and anger that can build up, and we have the potential to to be at fault in this, and it all stems back to not getting our own way over something or someone. This kind of simple anger to wrath is pure selfishness. I call it selfishness erupting. What do we call to do? We call to discard it. Discard it. Get rid of it. The next one is you have got up in the PowerPoint there. Discard malice. This is a bitterness that seeks to hurt other people. It's malice that causes us to say hurtful things about others, simply because maybe, well, they deserve it. Well, how dare they do that? They have no right to say that sort of thing to me or think that sort of thing of me or whatever. And so you spew a whole lot of words out that you hopefully, it will hurt them to the core. That's malice. It's malice that leads up to putting the knife in, as we say. When our words that were intended by God, by the way, to only communicate grace, as we see in the next chapter, verse 6. That's what our words are intended to do. Communicate grace. Well, we need to discard malice. We also need to discard slander. This is similar to malice in that it also defames a person's character. It does. It's a defamatory uh, remark or comment. The Greek word for, this, for slander is where we get the word blasphemy from. In other words, to slander God, we would use the word blasphemy, right? Well, to slander people... Who are people? People are people who are made in the image of God. Every one of us. Every walking person on this world ever has walked or will, work, will walk, walk has been made in the image of God. And to slander such a person, like it or not, is also blasphemy, according to James 3 9. This is a real easy one to fall into. Let us learn to treat people no matter who, no matter what. Even sometimes we might call them feral, which is bad. No matter what they've done, what they're involved in, let us learn to treat them with dignity. Why? Simply because they are made in the image of God. And but for the grace of God, you could be just that person yourself. Discard slander. Discard abusive speech. You know, when anger controls a person, you know what happens? Usually what happens? Abusive speech spills out of our mouth like vomit. And use you the projectile path. Abuse speech refers to words that are obscene, derogatory, and are intended to hurt and put someone down. How we need to guard our thoughts before we engage our tongues, folks. How we need that. You know, Jesus stressed the seriousness of this of watching what we say when he warned in Matthew twelve and verse six every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. Discard abusive speech. Discard lying. This should be on automatic in our lives, right? After all, Christians don't lie. But it's amazing how we still can lie to one another. Let alone out there. You know, what we might call a bare, bald-faced lie is as bad in God's reckoning as what we might dumb down as a white lie. Or a half-truth. No such thing in God's economy. A lie is a lie. Or maybe even promising someone something with no real intention of carrying it out. I find it so easy to slip the words out and say, oh yeah, yeah, I'll uh, catch up with you next week or whatever and then and, and whatever and just bury it. It's a lie. That's a lie. You know, the scripture says that Satan is the father of lies. Did you know that? He's the father of lies. We have that in John 8, 44. You know, lying is, is Satan's game plan. He's the inventor of it. If you want another word for Satan, just call him liar. That's what he is. Lies are his forte. When we lie, you know what we do? We're imitating Satan. We're imitating Satan not our Heavenly Father, who we heard the other week, who is truth. May we know our weaknesses and discard all lying and be people of truth. May we be like the psalmist who prayed this. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141, verse 3. Just in conclusion, how do we live lives change lives victorious for Jesus Christ. The recipe is this, as we had last week. First of all, your mind has got to be right. We've got to be thinking heavenward. We've got to eliminate these destructive sinful habits that that still cling to us. We've got to put them to death. We've got to take radical action and do whatever it takes to stop those sinful thoughts and lusts arising in your mind. Then what? The rags of our old life need to be Replaced. They need to be replaced with, with, with graces, God's graces. And I'll quote a scripture here from Philippians 4.8. They need to be replaced with God's graces of whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. May the word of Christ richly dwell within each one of us. And that'll go a long way to getting rid of the sin that we need to in our lives. Thank you, George.